Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode 19, where we're traveling to 1961 and the 18th winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, a name we've heard before, Walter Piston, for his Seventh Symphony. I'm Andrew Grenade, and I'm joined here with uh, by Dave Thurmeyer. So Dave, we've talked about Piston in our sixth episode a long time ago when he won for his Third Symphony, and now we're back for his Seventh Symphony. So I guess we should see what new we know to say <laughs> about good old Walter Piston. I know that you've been actually reading a lot of Piston lately. I have, yeah. What uh, last time we talked about him mainly as a composer, and said that we—I think we teased it even, saying that in because he's one of, I believe, three multiple winners, right? And we said in the next episode we'd talk about some of his other aspects of what he did in his life, and of course, being a teacher was a huge part of it. Teaching at Harvard for almost forty years, and having a, a amazing amount of famous students that studied with him ranging from Elliot Carter to Leonard Bernstein to Zhevsky to I mean you could go down the list here who's who are some other uh, there's some even more recent oh uh, John Harbison was another one uh, Leroy Anderson for example so a lot of people studied with Piston but uh, yeah I've been doing a lot of reading of his theory works and he's best known I would say nowadays for although less less so, but for his pioneering textbooks. And he wrote orchestration books. He wrote a book on counterpoint, which I'm using at UMKC in the fall, if you can believe it. That's uh, amazing. For, yeah, because, because it's... He was a, writing these in the 40s and the 50s, right? Yes. Yeah, this was... Uh, the counterpoint book was 1945, I think. And immediately you'd think, well, why would you use such an old book? But... It's more the topics. It's it's organized by style and topic, not not by genre or as much. So uh, it's really like three voice writing. Here's a whole bunch of different composers who did this, and so they're really practical and pedagogical. And then his harmony book too was probably the most frequently used book for many many years. So he uh, also came up with the term secondary dominant, and he came Which up we with, use all the time. Yep, he came up with the term harmonic rhythm. That's another one. So really important as a teacher and a pedagogue. And I think when we talked about him last time, we really talked about this. He's the perfect academic composer because yeah, he really is. Yeah, he's got the great teaching pedigree and, and obviously was a great teacher for all these wonderful students, uh, but, but cared about pedagogy and teaching and then had this ivory tower composer life as well. So... Well, I think you get a sense of how great a teacher he must have been because he didn't replicate himself. His students don't sound like each other. No. There's not a piston no. sound. So I think you can see that he really worked hard to craft the exact series of lessons that would help that student achieve what was inside them so mm-hmm. that his students came out sounding like themselves as opposed to piston. I think that's really the mark of a great teacher. Yeah, just taking the the two examples that I mentioned earlier of Elliot Carter and Leonard Bernstein. Well, those right. are <laughs> quite different aesthetically in every way, practically, apart from being East Coast Americans and you know, yeah, and it's very different aesthetics. So, uh, yeah, but, important. But to me, Carter is more of a what I would think of as a piston student yeah. than Bernstein because Carter has that same kind of love of form and 
um, craft. counterpoint and craft. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all these things that we talk about with Piston being this uh, amazing craftsman. We say the same things about Carter. So in that way, I, I see a lot of connection between Elliot Carter, who won in the very year before, yeah. um, and will also be a repeat winner. We'll come back to Elliot Carter. Uh, I see a lot of the similarities in terms of the way they approach composition, even though their music sounds completely different. Yeah, how about that? This time we've got the the teacher following the student from our last episode um, when we talked about Elia Carter and now going on to El- uh, Walter Piston. So yeah. pretty interesting. I thought it'd be great to have a quote from Elliot Carter so we can kind of see what he had to say about the next window of the Pulitzer Prize after him as teacher. Now, he said, through the years when the avant-garde moderns were busy exploring fantastic new sounds and sequences, through the early 30s, when a new wave of nationalism and populism startled many into thinking that the concert hall, with its museum atmosphere, was finished <laughs> as a place for living new music, down to the present more conservative situation, Piston went his own way. He stood firmly on his chosen ground, building up a style that is a synthesis of most of the important characteristics of contemporary music and assimilating them into his own manner, the various changes as they came along. His works have a uniform excellence that seems destined to give them an important position in the musical repertory. Yeah, very laudatory. and uh, Huge praise. I don't know if that came from the... There's a, He wrote a fairly lengthy essay in honor of one of Piston's hallmark or landmark birthdays. I don't know if it was his 70th or something, but it was on Walter Piston. And, right. Yeah, it was... Again, you, you, we've talked about our last episode how Carter was such a mod, high modernist and avant-garde in some ways, and, and yet he still has this abiding respect and love for Piston and for his music as well. So, But as we've discussed in the last episode, Carter may have said it would have an important position in the yeah. musical repertory, <laughs> but it really has faded from view. Yeah, big I mean, time. Piston is really not performed... Uh, as much as you would expect, given the fact that he taught everyone, he won the Pulitzer Prize twice. I mean, mm-hmm. he was like the epitome of an American composer during this time period. And in many ways, I think this is kind of the point. This win in 1961 of the Pulitzer Prize is kind of the point at which we start to see his fortunes change. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's time to to jump into telling the story. Telling the story. Right, so this piece uh, dates from, in terms of its composition, uh, 1960, the end of 1960, and this is when Piston has just retired from teaching. So he'd been teaching at Harvard, and he had an interview, actually, in the New York Times with Eric Salzman, and he said he felt liberated to finally compose, (laughs) because he said, I'm not carrying the burden of my students and waking up in the middle of the night trying to solve their problems. Hmm. So he felt free now to compose And this is the first big work that he composes after his retirement, uh, this Seventh Symphony, commissioned by the Philadelphia Orchestra, and it was actually premiered by them with Eugene Ormandy conducting in February. And he got $5,000 for this. It was a huge commission. They wanted five major pieces by major works, and Walter Piston was the first person they went to. Well, that's quite quite an honor. So again, it shows how time has sort of faded Walter Piston. Uh, you mentioned the premiere here with Eugene Ormandy. So the concert was February 10th and February 11th, 1960. And on the concert, we had Haydn's Military Symphony to start off, followed by Piston. It's in the, the new music spot. Perfect 
place. Right uh, where you always put the news. Right where you put it. Yeah, get, grab them with the Haydn Symphony Number no. 100, 100 and the Military Symphony, then put Pistons Symphony, and then Intermission, and then the Beethoven Violin Concerto right after that. So kind of an interesting It's an interesting mix. There. Yeah. And but they did this, it in Philadelphia, and yes. then at the end of the week they took it to Carnegie Hall, so they got a lot of mileage out of this. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not a very long symphony. I think that's maybe something that it fits well. And it's kind of compact. So you figure a typical Haydn symphony is around twenty minutes or twenty, maybe a little bit over. So is this. This one's not much more than twenty. I don't think it's even twenty five minutes. It's fairly compact. Yeah, it's around twenty minutes. Yeah, and it's only, only three, three movements. movements. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, three movements. Yeah. So exactly. very classic in its in its size. Mm-hmm. three movements 20 i mean it fits well with kind of early Haydn. yeah and so it, it i mean compared to compared to the third symphony which was from not that long before uh the circumstances were fairly similar i think it was another commission and sort of a another well it's time for walter to have a piece here and let's get him with a symphony and seems seemed very similar uh, at that point uh, I don't know if the so- the pieces sound all that similar, but no, I found the pieces actually to be very different. It's it's interesting because, again, talking about his students not having a piston sound, I'm not sure if there is a piston sound. Yeah. Even if you listen to all of his, since we're talking about his symphonies, if you listen to all of his symphonies, um, there's a love of counterpoint, mm-hmm. and uh, there's still a rooting in tonality, but. <laughs> the way he uses the orchestration. I mean, there's not a sound that you listen to it and you go, that's a piston work. It does sound no. mid-century American. Mm-hmm. Well, and this, this, the, around the time of this piece and doing the, a lot of reading about piston in his life, he did start to take an interest in some of the more modernist avant-garde trends going on. He, uh, he couldn't get away from it, obviously, especially if you've got your former student winning the award and writing a music that sounds very different than what you do. So he, he did try some 12 tone and he tried some modernist techniques. I don't think this piece really has much of that. It seems maybe the slow movement has some, but, uh, or maybe eh, a little bit here and there, but it, it, to me, doesn't, it doesn't sound very modernist in its, way it still has that academic sound that mid mid-century sound to it well maybe that we should go ahead and go behind the notes and begin to talk i think there's a lot we can kind of dig into with this piece behind the notes all right so you did say there were three movements and it's a con moto so it starts out kind of slow and then it gets faster it's, it's sort of a back and forth deal and then there's a which is not uh, not too long, but then we have a very long slow movement, Adagio Pastoral, and one of the descriptions I read about this piece was that it's Piston's Pastoral Symphony. And so that, that is clearly, at least from my hearing, the centerpiece of this piece is the slow movement. And then it ends with Allegro Festivole, and it is very festive, very fast, lots of rhythms you know rhythmic stuff back and forth lots of wind solos and very virtuosic sounding so it, it's very front heavy i would say the description of this it, it first two movements much longer more involved and then kind of a quick we got to end happy le- let them leave the hall with that yeah that adagio that that pastoral movement absolutely is the center of gravity of this entire symphony it takes up over half the length of the symphony yeah. is in the middle movement, which is really strange if we think about 
you know, I would traditionally for a symphony think a lot of emphasis on the first movement, and then you put a lot of weight, kind of a teleological, or pushing towards mm-hmm. the end. Here, the end really seems like it's just dashed off, and it was over before I expected it to be when I was listening to it. Yeah, yeah, it was quick. Uh, it, it did. It sort of flew. Uh, I, thinking of the three movements, like I said I really like the slow movement the best. I think it, it, the sense of time is really interesting in this piece. It felt very timeless that slow movement it sort of just went on and i listened to it with a score and then i listened to it a lot of times just in the background and there's a very attractive quality i think to the slow movement that i didn't hear in the earlier piece where we talked about how the slow movement was drudge it was just kind of turgid and and slow going but it seems to have a little more motion in this piece and i like the idea where you're talking about the the playing with time because it does have so much space and it just kind of opens up. I thought it might be useful to kind of hear how it opens because mm-hmm. it has this really lovely, um, in the strings, this really chromatic kind of writing in the strings, lots of seconds just kind of resolving. And then on top of that, this oboe just comes and just floats. And it's absolutely lovely the way it starts. So I thought we could listen a little bit to that. That is nice. Yeah, it's a sort of a at least description here is kind of variation on a theme or kind of motivic development, and it's through these different woodwind solos. You've got the flute solo, you've got an English horn, English horn solo that's pretty prominent, and then the strings as well. So, and the melodies, I mean, they're beautiful, but they the one thing about them for me was they didn't seem to go anywhere. Ne- I was going to say like just meandering. They just meander, they wander. (laughs) They don't seem to have any kind of direction, which I think also increases the kind of sense of timelessness Mm -hmm. in that you don't feel a pulse. You don't know what's coming next. You're just kind of floating out there listening to these melodies that aren't kind of moving you anywhere. You can hear the relationship of the melodies one to the other. Oh, yeah. But any kind of sense of drive, which I think is another reason why that last movement seemed to just kind of fly by is because it has a very clear sense of time mm-hmm. and a very clear meter as you're kind of clicking along. And whereas the second movement harmonically doesn't seem to go anywhere either. It even has these moments of bitonality that you're just kind yeah. of like, where am I? Yeah. That third movement, it starts like in D major and away you go and it you're goes. there. Yeah. 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 It really it definitely does. I wonder, I was thinking of uh, you're you're teaching a band music class right now. And I know we were talking the other day, you were talking about some of these mid century band composers of the canonic style i feel like the last movement really sounds like a band piece or could the strings don't have as much of a role it's more wind driven and rhythmic and do you you hear that as well or is now that you say it i mean even that beginning that kind of fanfare like opening Mm -hmm. it's a flourish and it's all fifths so yeah Yeah. it just kind of soars up uh actually grab that we can listen a little bit to that opening too because i think it's a good contrast (laughs) to what we have in the second movement Thank you. 
so yeah, I can really hear that as a band work. I mean, he <laughs> uh, wrote for the band as well. He was one of those uh, composers who were kind of tagged in the 1940s as important American composers who need to write for the band. And so he was commissioned by actually the, the Goldman Band, a very famous band in New York at the time. So I can hear him kind of doing that. Uh, and you're right, that last movement, whereas the middle movement is very string and woodwind, mm-hmm. this is very brass heavy on the last movement. Yeah, yeah. And for the first movement, also described as being in sonata form, uh, it, I found that of the three, the least memorable. It, I totally agree. I, I couldn't sing you one thing, that tell you one thing that happens in it. Uh, I know the beginning starts out with kind of a, like a pounding quarter note pulse, boom, 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 or something like that. But then the rest of it is just completely gone. But this shocks me because that's the most contrapuntal movement. And you're the, you're our counterpoint guy. I am, We've, we've I established know. that. I know, I know. It, oh, it is. And there's this one moment where it all kind of coalesces. And I think it's an F minor chord and it just hits. And it, it is great. But it, it maybe it just seems too meandering, uh, almost too much that way but i don't know uh, it it i think the piece holds up more well we'll get to this when we do our assessment but i think the it's more musically interesting than the other piece that we talked about the third symphony well let's then go ahead and talk about hit or miss in our our assessments <laughs> and the assessment of other people at the time hit or miss well, Andrew, this is a very, very sad moment, or maybe kind of a, a changing of the guards, or, a, or, or passing the baton, because as we mentioned in our last episode, Elliot Carter was Chalmers Clifton's last supervisory role here. Uh, he's no it's longer a new in day. charge. It's a new day, yes. And so, looking at the jury report from February of 1961. It's written to Professor John Hohenberg, Secretary of the Pulitzer Prize Advisory Board. Okay. And the assessment comes from, now, boy, is this not just uh, prefiguring our, our, uh, this is foreshadowing our next episode here, but one of the judges was Robert Ward, and then Paul Henry Long are the two uh, people who wrote this letter, and it says, Recommendation for the Pulitzer Prize 1961, Walter Piston, Symphony Number no. 7. Runners-up, we always like the runners-up, William Bergsma. Sure. Chameleon Variations, first performed by the Portland Junior Symphony. Hmm. And then Lucas Foss, Time Cycle, first performed by the New York Philharmonic. And this is interesting. Uh, they, I don't remember them saying this about Minotti, who was the other, another two-time winner, but they said here, we are conscious of the fact that Mr. Piston is already a Pulitzer Prize winner and that, in 1948, and that weighed rather heavily with us. On the other hand, there can be no question that in this group of compositions, his symphony stands out as a remarkable achievement eminently worthy of a Pulitzer Prize. It shows a mastery of the symphonic idiom, a fine sense for form, rich melodic invention, and an immediate sense of proportion. And last but not least, its sense of proportion shows the judgment of a mature creative artist who uses neither more nor less than what is called for. So really highlighting the craft. Exactly. exactly. Of the piece, which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. I'm also fascinated by Bergsma and Foss as the two runners up because they're kind of the next generation behind Piston. 
um, I think Bergsman at the time was teaching at Juilliard. So he's very much in, in kind of the, right, the, the New England mm. old boys network that we've been talking about that figure so strongly in these early years. Um, so it's interesting that they chose not to award one of these younger composers, but went back to Walter Piston well, almost as like a, a summation of his yeah. career. Well, that's funny you say that because the reading about Bergsman says, talking about the great work, uh, it's distinguished by a rather personalized style, which coming from a young composer is noteworthy. And then Lucas Foss, the problem is one gets the distinct impression that this is a new departure for this composer and his language is not yet fully settled. Hmm. So yeah, I like your idea sort of like how Ives was a summative award. uh, But in this case, Piston, we sort of, travel from 1948 to 1961 here and this is kind of okay well look at all he's done since he's just now retired yeah yeah you have elliot carter extolling his value yes his students getting awards now yeah and Hmm. i also think that we are moving and we'll see um i mean you kind of gave a a prelude with (laughs) robert ward being (laughs) on the jury but i think we'll see as we move into the 60s with Chalmers Clifton off the jury mm-hmm. and this award now to Piston that we're beginning to see a, a new approach in the Pulitzer and new people are going to win Yeah, this kind of 15 year block of, uh, of time where it was basically, all right, well, it's Douglas Moore's turn. <laughs> I think we're going to start Kubik. moving away. Yeah. Right. We're going to start moving away from that approach. Um, and we'll be interesting to see how things change as we move forward into the 1960s. Mm-hmm. So what are the, I'm curious what the newspapers, was this reviewed or was this? This uh, was reviewed. Yeah. Um, the premiere in the Philadelphia Orchestra in Philadelphia uh, was reviewed for Musical America by Robert Sabin, who just couldn't say enough good things about it. said it was this <laughs> outstanding new work. He's very in favor of it. Loved it. But then, as I mentioned, it comes to New York and Carnegie Hall just a few days after the Philadelphia premiere. And our good friend Harold Schoenberg uh, <laughs> has this to say. Says it's in three movements. It lasts about 20 minutes. It is a typical piston work, smoothly constructed, well orchestrated, shapely in form, and always well bred. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. But now here comes the turn. But it just somehow doesn't seem to say anything particularly interesting. It expertly goes through all of the motions without ever giving the feeling that the composer has anything really personal to impart. The melodic material, Mr. Piston composes in the orthodox vein with relatively few dissonances or harmonic problems, is always to the fore, and yet the melodies themselves never seem to take in much air. They sound thin, gray, dry, (laughs) even though they rise and fall. And when one leaves the concert hall, one remembers the symphony was certainly a respectable work, one also finds it difficult to remember any specific characteristics. Can this be the fault of an unperceptive listener exposed to the work a first time? One doubts it. For how many times in the past has an unfamiliar work, and not an especially good one, Ooh. made some kind of impression, in instrumentation, and in rhythm, in a snatch of melody, in some kind of contour or idea that stays with the listener long after the event? Well, at first I would say he was damning with faint praise, but then... Then, then he, he just started damning. He was damning, and yeah, completely. He just there. went directly... I mean, uh, melodies that are thin, gray, dry. Ooh, That's yeah. some very descriptive. Uh, yeah. Do you, very horrible. I really, you know, reading that or hearing you say that, I just wonder now how much more the critics have 
to do with our present day perception of of this because we i don't know i've, I've you look back we, in my Beatle podcast we talk about how certain albums certain songs were so loved at the time but then a critic later gives it a bad review or something and says oh this is a weak album and then ever since it's always like yeah it's one not one of his best albums or you know, I, I wonder like a, a prominent person like harold schoenberg in the times laying that out eh. if that began to change then. yeah if it began to change because I, I don't know when did pistons music stop being performed frequently that would be interesting to know yeah well, and in there, you hear a lot of the same criticisms that we've been making. Yes. Uh, I mean, we talked about the fact that the the melodies in that second movement didn't seem to go anywhere, but I don't know I would describe them as gray and dry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I, uh, I think so. Especially because uh, the instruments that he chooses to put the melodies in, I think, give it a, a certain amount of character and a certain life. They just don't have the kind of for a symphony that has cl such classical proportions, it doesn't have the type of melodic regularity that we would expect. Mm, and I think that mm -hmm. may be a, an expectation that then isn't fulfilled, which then changes the way that you experience the piece. Maybe that liberation is what Piston's talking about. He could write music now that he just, uh, you know, he just sort of felt free to write these meandering melodies, or although we, we had those before, but the, uh, maybe he just, maybe he had like a, some conceptual shift in his own thinking yeah. about this piece and writing it. So, well, what know. about so, you? Yeah. Do you fall on the side of uh, Mr. Schoenberg or Mr. Sabian? Uh, it's probably somewhere in between. I think it, for me, if we're going to say if this is a hit or a miss, I would probably say it's more of a hit than the other piece. I think than the third symphony, I think there's more interesting material in here and uh, it, especially the last movement, I think would be fun for an audience to, to listen to and, and perform. Uh, in fact, where one of the recordings on this piece is, has, was actually a fairly recent one by the Oregon Symphony, and they recorded, we'll put a link to it, but they recorded Hanson's Symphony that we talked about in episode two, I think, and then the, this piece as well as Morton Gould's piece, which we'll talk about not for quite a while, uh, but it's it's being recorded again so maybe there is some you know these things go in cycles and so i think that new recording to me was very interesting and very good so uh yeah maybe maybe the orchestras can start to bring back some of this music and make make us re reconsider and think about it so how about for you is it a hit or a miss uh like you i'm kind of in the middle um when it started i thought Eh, I don't know if I'm going through this. <laughs> Here we go again. <laughs> the second movement, um, I thought went on a little long, but I enjoyed I thought it was beautiful. Uh, and then the third movement kind of swept me away, and I thought, okay, well, yeah. Mm -hmm. I can see how this could be enjoyable. I think you're right. There is It's more musically interesting um, than the third symphony that we listened to. So, yeah, I would give it as a qualified hit. Okay, that makes sense. So we'll see. It should be, uh, you know, we'll... See if there's a piston revival anytime soon here. I have a feeling no, but uh, <laughs> at least it'll get hopefully get get you to listen to and uh, some of this music again and check it out because it was quite popular in its time and uh, worth revisiting every now and then. So absolutely. Well, that's it for today's episode of Hearing the Pulitzer. 
And as always, you can find more about our project at our website, hearingthepulitzers.com, where you'll also find links and short bibliography. And like I said, we'll link to the uh, recording of the Oregon Symphony, where you can read more about Walter Piston. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at, at, hearing the Pul at H. Pulitzers for links between episodes. And finally, join us for next episode when we return to operas, winning the award with Robert Ward's version of Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible. Until then, keep listening. Mm -hmm.